Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank Show. My name is Abhishek and today joining me on the call is Zeke Fox, the author of the fascinating book, Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall. He has met with the who's who of the industry and the common man in different countries, including investigative work in Cambodia, of all places. In fact, his book was referenced in the recent Sam Bankman-Fried trial. His book also is the finalist at the Edgar Award, which is generally reserved for exciting mystery novels that's in the fact-crime category the, and considered to be among the best books of the year by New York Times Deal Book, The Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Financial Times, and a bunch of others, including The Words and The Wired. In the last three years, as all of you who know a thing or two, or absolutely know nothing about crypto, uh, the world has had a topsy-turvy ride, which Zeke has covered in his book in a rather user-friendly manner, to use an IT jargon. Zeke, thanks a lot for joining in. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. I had my first brush with the subject of cryptocurrency in, in a rather humorous uh, way when I had chanced upon a video of John Oliver of The Tonight Show where he described uh, cryptocurrency as everything you don't understand about money combined with everything you don't understand about computers. So that was 2018. What has changed since? Uh, you know, I, I, and by the way, I'm one of those uh, unlucky dudes who started putting in some money and I have lost a few as well. So let me admit that. But what do you think has changed since? Uh, have people gotten their heads around the subject? No, definitely not. And I actually, was, was that the video where, did they talk about Dogecoin in that video? Yeah, they did. Yeah. Yes, so, among others, yeah. Yeah, so that video was actually relevant to the beginning of my journey. I find crypto very confusing. And I got into it around, during the pandemic, I'm losing track of years, but it's like early 2021. And right. just like so many people, I have a friend who is making some money on crypto and he was telling me that that I should buy some too. And it was the one he recommended, he called it doggy coin. Hmm. And he was saying, <laughs> yeah. look, I see people talking about it on Twitter. Let, let's all buy it. And it wasn't that he understood it. He would admit he did not understand it. And I was like, listen, it's called Dogecoin. He's like, don't care. <laughs> I said, it doesn't do anything. He said, don't worry about it. It's going to go up. Then I said, I saw a video where John Oliver made fun of this years ago. Years ago. This is, this is an old joke. It's not even a funny joke. And he said, I could see on Reddit that people still like the joke. It's building momentum. Sure enough, I did not invest. And Dogecoin started going up and up. And Elon Musk was tweeting about it. And eventually my friend sold out. He made a very good return, thousands of dollars. He went to Disney World and he sent pictures from Disney World taunting me and saying, hey, if you'd invested in this Dogecoin, you could be here with me right now. I, and he said, <laughs> I am freaking Nostradamus. Yeah. And so yes. I thought, yeah, I've been hearing about this for years. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody's really using crypto for anything. But yet the prices are just going one way straight up. People are getting rich. I'm hearing about billionaires. I'm hearing about my friend Jay going to Disney World. I want to know why. And that was kind of the, the start of my journey. 
And how did that make you feel in the beginning? You are a financial journalist and investigative reporter and you are expected to do lots of analysis, read balance sheets, try to get to the bottom of uh, uh, companies and then uh, it's a head scratcher that folks around you are making money and it's making you, did it make you wonder what am I not reading? Well, I had a lot of emotions. I was a little bit jealous. I'm not allowed to make investments, so I was never going to invest, but I still was kind of jealous that I uh, that I hadn't. And I also felt like you're saying that I know how things work. An investment must be based on a expected return. And with crypto, it just seemed like it was totally divorced from all the traditional rules of finance. And now a lot of people, I get this response from a lot of people, even now, they'll say, well, isn't the whole stock market crazy? Isn't it all kind of based on nothing and just go up and down for no reason? And Maybe in the short term, yes, like there's big stock market moves that you can't explain. But in the long run, if you buy a share of Coca-Cola, then every time that company sells a soda, you are earning some fraction of a penny. And that is sort of the basis of why companies are valuable, why stocks go up, why people make investments. And with crypto, it was like, forget that. We're not going to do anything. Just buy this picture of a dog, and if enough other people do it, it'll go up. And so, well, okay, I thought, all right, this seems pretty dumb. But I also thought, could there be something more here? Like, it can't all be this dumb, right? Like, there's got to be something more here. I just, I didn't think there was, but I also felt like there had to be. So that was how I decided to start off investigating. See, your example of Coca-Cola, where if the company does well and you get a share of it, if you are a shareholder there, those who believed in crypto and let's say not the dodgy ones, the cryptocurrency or, or you know, where you'd like to invest, they might say that for Coca-Cola, you need to have X hundred dollars, I don't know, whatever the price is to get one share. But for any of these crypto, it helps the common man on the road. Let's say, let's say a rickshawala, the guys who drive tuk-tuks or rickshaws in Mumbai to invest 10 rupees or 10 cents worth of uh, the pie where, you know, it's, it's more uh, for an egalitarian reason. Those kinds of uh, arguments also come up. But I'll pause there for a second. Did you, in your time of investigating this, find any good, solid for arguments meaning which uh, say okay this there is some merit in it at least in theory or was it all hogwash a lot of it sounds very good in theory take ethereum which is one of the most popular cryptocurrencies ethereum i don't have a great like pocket explanation of it but essentially it's almost like a distributed computer network that people can use for all sorts of purposes so you can run an exchange on Ethereum that's distributed. It doesn't have this like one central middleman. And if it could be allow users to trade things back and forth from each other without like JP Morgan in the middle of it. And it kind of makes sense as an investment because if enough people are using the network, whenever they use it, they pay fees. And therefore, unlike say Dogecoin, which is this is just a joke. Let's all laugh at it and hope it goes up. With Ethereum, there's some idea that if enough people use the network, they need to buy the token to use the network, and therefore it'll be valuable. And sorry for that like terrible explanation of Ethereum. But what I found was that even ones that, that made sense in theory, when I went and looked at what they were doing in practice, 
I found that they had really little practical use, were very hard to use. And if they were measured against other consumer applications, I, it was hard to see how crypto was ever going to get mass appeal. And I saw that I could certainly see how it was fun to buy crypto and then see it go up and make money. But I think in the long run, it has to create some sort of application that people want to use. It has to win in the marketplace. And then the value will come from people using it and paying fees. I had a million arguments with top people in the crypto world where they would say, crypto is great for like quick money transfers at low fee. And I would say, well, I've got Venmo. It's serving my purposes. It's, it's very effectively, it's very quick. Doesn't charge me anything. This holds no appeal for me. Even if your crypto app works great, I, I wouldn't use it because I already have something that's better. And they'd say, well, what about, well, you, you're in America. You're, you're lucky. You're well off. You're in a rich country. In the developing world, they don't have this. They, for them, crypto might be a better alternative. And so in the book, I went to El Salvador to explore this, where they've tried to adopt crypto as an alternative with like very little success. Um, but now I've also been reading about in India, there's like a national payment system that's pretty low cost. Yes. Isn't that yeah. right? Yes. It's, it's quite user-friendly and uh, the cost is borne by the government, the transaction fees, but uh, it's, it's fairly straightforward. I mean, it takes two taps to buy a, a coconut on the street or paying for a supermarket or apparel, whatever it is that you buy. Yeah, that's true. And, and you don't need to know the coconut seller's name, right? Like you no. just get their sort of ID number. Yes, so, you just scan a QR code and you are good to go. And everyone from my mom can use it to, to anybody like you and me, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, I think in India, it's unlikely that crypto for payments will become popular because you're competing with such a good system. Like crypto people, who even ones who said, oh, I'm all into payments. I'm, a, I'm an expert. I'm creating this great payments technology would have no idea about what's happening in India. Or in mm. Kenya, where they similarly have really good mobile phone-based yeah. phone payments mm. with like, I mean, there are fees, but they're not huge. And it's adopted by everyone in the whole country. And it predates even smartphones. So a lot of the ideas make sense in theory. You can see how they might be cool, but then very little effort has been put into actually developing products that people want to use. And there's this one moment in the book that I think really encapsulates it for me. And I, I was at Sam Bankman frieds big crypto conference in the Bahamas. And this was in April 2022. Things were still, it was just before things started to collapse. They're still going really well. And everybody was in a good mood. Everybody there was like a venture capitalist or a crypto founder. They'd made tons and tons of money. They're there because they did a lot of business with Sam Bankman fried And I met with this one guy. Everyone wanted to meet with reporters and pitch their, their new thing. So I met with this guy who ran something called Star Atlas. And it was a video game. And they'd sold, it was in a space. It was a spaceship video game. And the spaceships were NFTs, non-fungible tokens. So you could sort of own your spaceship. You could sell it. You could make money that way. There's some sort of economy where you could earn a return on your spaceship when you weren't using it. They'd raised 300 million, two or $300 million in Star Atlas from selling these virtual items. I was sitting with the founder. He was telling me all about this. And it reminded me of, I don't play video games much anymore, 
when I was a kid, I loved spaceship video games like Wing Commander. There's this one called Escape Velocity that I loved. And I told him, hey, you've made 300 million selling the ships. This game sounds sweet. Let's play. You know, do you have a laptop? Like, show me your game. I'll write about it in the book. And he said, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. We may have sold $300 million of spaceships, and we've already enabled all the, like, gambling aspects of the game. Yeah. You can't play. The game does not exist. You know? Like, the money aspect got so far ahead of the usefulness aspect. And I think that's true, like, across crypto. What did the folks like Sequoia Capital see? Because these are intelligent minds, investors, you know, investors, venture capitalists. I think, if I remember the figure correctly, they have or they had invested $213 million in FTX at the time when it was making a lot of noise. Now, when you speak with some of those folks, have they done a U-turn today as compared to what where they were? Or are they saying that it's an idea whose time will come? How is it? Because these are intelligent folks having burnt money then at the moment. That's yes. how it appears to be. Well, I think that when it comes to Sequoia, I think that I sort of made the same mistake as them, which was I spent a few days with Sam Bankman-Fried in the Bahamas when things were going great, before this conference, kind of at the peak of the bubble. And I'm sitting with him and he's telling me, I've built this great crypto exchange and it's got really good technology. It's very safe. It's very fast. I was a Wall Street trader once. He worked at Jane Street Capital, which is a really highly regarded firm. And he was like, these crypto guys don't know what they're doing. I'm taking the best of Wall Street and I'm creating this high-tech exchange. And he wouldn't say Dogecoin's going to the moon, Bitcoin is the future. He kept it very grown up. Even though he kind of dressed like a kid, he acted like a grown up and he would say, yeah, like a lot of this crypto stuff is kind of weird, but if but I think people want to trade it and if they, they're going to want to trade it with me because my exchange is safe, and I'm in it for the long run. Whatever happens with crypto, I'll be there and I'll earn fees just from the trading. And I'm not taking big bets. And his whole company had sprung up out of nowhere. They'd gained a lot of market share. And they seemed like a bunch of really smart young people who lived and died for this mission of making a yeah. really good crypto exchange. And so I think that the venture capitalists saw the same thing and thought, you know what? I can see that crypto is going up and up and up. I don't want to go buy Dogecoin, but I want to get in on this somehow. This is a company that's going to make money regardless of what happens. And I, I can profit from the crypto boom without actually taking a position on crypto. And now what we know now is that actually when regular users sent money to his crypto exchange, FTX, he would tell the users, oh, yes, your money's safe here. In fact, he would take their money and with his hedge fund, Alameda Research, he would secretly gamble that money on things like Dogecoin. And he was basically stealing all the money that came in for his own, own gambles. It was like the opposite of what he was telling everybody. And he was not the sober grown up in the room, not taking directional bets. No. He was taking these crazy bets and taking them with stolen money. But I can see how if Sequoia was interested in crypto, this would have actually seemed like one of the safer bets. Now, 
as I'm saying this, I'm like, but come on, you guys, you're the venture capitalists. <laughs> you can get their financial records. You could hire, you know, any number of experts to look over the records before you invest. Like I was just sort of sitting there. I had no access to their financial reports and I'm still kicking myself that I didn't, that I didn't see what was happening. <laughs> they, it, Sam was great at playing this part. Like when I was sitting with him, one of the first times that we met, he was conducting interviews with other journalists over Zoom. So I'm sort of sitting like right next to him. And then he was also, while I could, I could see that while he was doing the interviews, he was playing video games. Then I just thought it was this kind of like, I'm above it all attitude that seemed in hindsight, maybe was a red flag. But in the moment you thought, wow, this is a guy who just doesn't care. Like uh, he's so sure of himself. It seemed kind of appealing. And the Sequoia guys, when he pitched them on FTX, he was playing League of Legends and they found out about it <laughs> and yes. they weren't mad. They were like, oh my God. This guy is so bold that he he's so so unimpressed by us that he's just going to play video games while he pitches us. And that's kind of what, as a venture capitalist, you want to invest with someone who doesn't need your money too bad. And so that seemed like kind of a good sign that he didn't even care about getting their money. Um, in fact, you know, maybe a bad sign that he just didn't care about anything. And he he was also making the right noises, right? In the in the Congress, you know, he was part of that gang which said human tracking trafficking is real. You've got money laundering issues. It appeared that he gunned for more regulation, and that's why it you know he wasn't seen in the same light as others in the industry, and that may have added to his charm, perhaps. Yes, definitely. And I thought, and probably Sequoia thought this too, that what his game was was to work the regulators in his favor so that there would be kind of stricter rules on crypto that made it hard for his rivals to do business. And he would gain market share as like the regulator's favorite, the compliant one. It seemed like a lot of his crazy spending on marketing and lobbying was aimed at getting this reputation as the good guy so that he could gain market share that way. You, you talked about crazy uh... Uh, there. Could you give a couple of examples of the kind of folks that you met in this industry, which, uh, you know, you thought was uh, a little odd to use that term as a euphemism? Uh, I, I read one about someone tattooing his arm with one such coin, and he was an ex-Goldman Sachs executive, oh. and, uh, you know, among others. So t tell me about your travels and the kind of folks you met and what you thought was quite odd uh, or, or quite idiosyncratic of this industry. You bring up uh, one of my favorites, Mike Novogratz. He'd been a big time trader at Goldman Sachs. And he actually gave a quote back in 2017 to a different Bloomberg reporter, Eric Schatzker, that I thought was very honest. Because this guy, he got out of traditional finance and he got into crypto you know, relatively early. And he said to my colleague, this is the biggest bubble ever big fortunes are going to be made on the way up. And I, I plan on making one. And I thought, okay, all right, <laughs> I, I can see that that is logical. But by the time I was writing my book, he'd become less forthcoming about his plans or his attitude had changed. I mean, it, truly embarrassing. I don't know how he shows his face in public after this. There was this Ponzi scheme called, it had a few names, but it's called Terra Luna. Is run by this guy Do Kwan, 
And without getting into the details, at the core of it was this coin that if you held it, it paid 19% interest. In order to pay interest, you have to earn money, right? And generally, it's believed in finance that if someone is paying a high interest rate, they must be doing risky things to earn money. Now, this guy who ran Terra Luna, he never explained how he made the 19%. It didn't really make any sense. And even within crypto, a lot of people would tell me, hey, you should look into this Terra Luna thing. I, doesn't add up to me. But Novogratz got the logo of Terra Luna tattooed on his shoulder and was a big promoter of it. And inevitably, in the summer of 2022, it blew up. I think it's still kind of unclear what set it off, but just pyramid collapsed. Doquan fled to Montenegro, uh, though he was later tracked down. And now it looks like he's going to be extradited, I believe, to the U.S., although he's also wanted in South Korea. This Ponzi scheme, this is where crypto is just so wild. Doquan's Ponzi scheme at one point had something like $60 billion, just like a huge amount. And big Wall Street firms, not just Novogratz, were investing in it. One of the questions that I was exploring in this crypto world that I, I had trouble answering in the moment was a, there were a lot of things in crypto that paid interest. Like there was mm. a company called Celsius Network. Yeah. And I, I met the founder, Alex Mashinsky, at one of my, it was one of the first guys in crypto I met. And he explained this whole thing about how he was like, send me your crypto and I will pay you 5%, 10%, 15% interest. How do you do that? In the traditional finance world, that's very hard. Interest rates were zero at the time. So I was I thought, are you are you taking big risks? Are you somehow just betting on the coins going up and making money that way? And he and everybody else in crypto insisted to me, no, we've got these great secret methods of making money. We're not taking huge risks. But when the summer of 22 hit and this Terra Luna Ponzi scheme collapsed, a lot of the truth came out. And it turned out that every a lot of these crypto companies were built on taking crazy risks and were lending money to each other. And that in the end, the yield really did come from somebody or another paying interest rate, high interest rates to borrow money to bet on Dogecoin going up or to bet on all sorts of things going up. Crazy. In, in fact, Do Kwon that you talk about, he was on a podcast and uh, uh, just like you have a photo bomb, there was a video bomb on, on, on the Zoom call where they got in uh, Martin Shikiri or I, I don't yes. know if his last, I'm pronouncing it right. Shrelly. Uh, Shrelly, right? Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So I think he's a financial criminal and he, he served some time and he tells Do Kwon that don't worry, jail is not that bad uh, and that you'll get, get through and then he says, good to know. But on, on a serious note, do you think that uh, regulators also were uh, sleeping at the wheel. And I like one part of the book where you talk about one Mr. J.R. Willett uh, of MasterCoin, where he raised $500,000 by selling these MasterCoins and then the initial coin offering, uh, the equivalent of IPO, came into vogue. Now, what you write that he was in effect, that was an unregistered securities offering, which is basically a crime as per the US uh, uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, and he himself admits, doesn't he, that if somebody saw me doing this, they would stop me, but nobody is really looking uh, in, these, yes. in these places. So uh, yes, I think they could have done a lot more. I, I want to defend Willett for or clarify one okay. thing. In the US, unregistered securities offering, it's like a civil violation. You would just pay a fine. 
but it's, it's not criminal. It, okay. to, for it to be criminal, you need to also lie to the investors. If you just do an unregistered offering, it can be resolved with a, with a fine. It doesn't count as a crime. But I think it's very, quite obvious the regulators were not doing their job. And you can see it by, more recently, the Securities and Exchange Commission sued Coinbase, among other crypto exchanges. And what they said in this lawsuit was not that Coinbase had secretly done anything bad. They just said, hey, you're offering all these coins on your platform, and these are unregistered securities. And Coinbase had been openly doing this for years, and there was no need. It wasn't like there was some huge amount of evidence that needed to be gathered. It was right there on the internet. But for years, the Securities and Exchange Commission let this happen. Only last year did they did they sue. My thinking is that in some cases, the schemes were complicated. They were cross-border, so they were hard to investigate. When everything was going great, it's hard for the regulators to step in and say, if they try to stop the fun, everyone will be very mad at them. But once crypto collapses... Now you have a lot of angry investors calling the regulators and saying, hey, Do Kwan stole my money. Can you go get him? And that is an easier time to uh, to bring the case. Also, how would you respond to some folks who might say that it is a few bad apples that are bringing a really horrific name to the industry? It's like, uh, what is that uh, Top Gun quote? It's not the plane, it's the pilot, uh, is what Tom <laughs> Cruise says. Or it's it's basically the guys who are... Uh, running the show and not the show itself. So I think I remember this during the subprime crisis as well, back in 2008, uh, so 7-8. I did speak. There was a well-known investment bank called uh, State Street Global Markets and they issued a statement uh, and in which they said that, uh, I, I quote, market participants don't know whether to buy on the rumor and sell on the news, do the opposite, do both or do neither, depending on which way the wind is blowing, unquote. Which means that, even during the in the conventional money markets, you you had these kinds of scams coming in, and those were perpetrated by some gamblers who invested in things that I don't understand. By the way, collateral debt obligations and whatnot, and it is that equivalent uh, you know section bringing a bad name to the industry, whether it's the Binance chap, the uh, Sam Bankman-Frieds of the world, uh, and the Celsiuses of the world. So how would you react uh, to that? That's a very good question, which I have gotten a lot. And what I would say is that I have not looked into every single thing in crypto. Could there be a good one out there? I mean, it'd be kind of embarrassing if there wasn't, because so many people <laughs> have spent so much time trying to come up with new cryptocurrencies and new apps and whatever. But I went into the industry and met the most prominent people. The biggest and most prominent companies in the industry were revealed to be frauds. Binance, like by far the biggest exchange, the founder uh, was arrested and pleaded guilty to like huge amounts of money laundering. Binance was moving money for terrorist groups. And Binance put out a statement that was like, well, at least we didn't, you know, they didn't catch us stealing any money as if we should be, we should be happy that Binance actually uh, had the money. So the people that remain in crypto say, hey, you know, the bad actors are gone now. You can trust crypto. And I would say, you know, I've heard it before and I'm, I'm not going to spend my time investigating these new companies. 
Like, I feel like the industry has been discredited by the terrible ones that have come before. And I heard it before when, even when things were going great, people like Sam Bankman Fried would tell me, oh yeah, like there's a lot of scams in crypto, but I'm the honest one. Don't worry about the bad apples, forget about them. And now I've, those guys are in trouble too. And even the guys that remain like Coinbase, which by all accounts is one of the more compliant exchanges. I mean, like I said, they're facing this huge lawsuit from the SEC for basically ignoring all of the SEC's rules. As like an investor, what I would, what I think, again, I'm not an investor, but what I would say is I'm going to wait until there's some sort of app that real people are using that I hear like my friends like, that might get me more interested in crypto again. But when it's all just based on this buy it and it goes up and we'll all get rich, I just don't think that is the basis of a solid investment. Though it turned out to be the basis of a lot of a funny adventure. <laughs> yes, and, and you write about this, don't you? That uh, stable coin, which, uh, which has always been brought forth by those behind it saying that for let's say one unit of tether or tether that you've investigated uh, they would also have or buy one usd one us dollar so but at the same time you also write that among the risks mentioned on tether's web tether's website was that we could abscond with the reserve funds now when you when you read these sorts of things these are indeed red flags like you said some a while ago so that doesn't inspire a lot of confidence then yeah so when i set off on this investigation my main target was Tether. There were so many red flags. I thought it was the best company to investigate because they'd sold 50 billion or more Tether tokens. And there's, that meant they're supposed to have 50 billion US dollars in the bank somewhere, but they weren't saying where. And the more I investigated, the less confidence I had in Tether. To just one example, the CEO and the CFO were almost never seen in public to the extent that some people thought the CEO was a fake person and didn't exist. I do meet him in the book. He's real. But as I went deeper into the crypto world, and as a lot of other crypto companies started failing, Tether stayed strong. Dark, like a lot of the book is kind of silly, but the dark part of the book is I start to question, why do people trust Tether? Who's really using it? And that's where, as you mentioned, I ended up going to Cambodia because I found that this stablecoin, this electronic form of US dollars that you could move quickly and semi-anonymously was quite popular with criminals and that there were Chinese gangsters running online scams and earning billions of dollars with Tether. And I even visit this compound where they trafficked workers from across Southeast Asia. And they had thousands of people who were working around the clock, running crypto scams and getting people, tricking people from around the world to send them tether. And for these criminals, I realized crypto is great because like if I want to send money to someone in Cambodia and they're scamming me, if I use Vast MasterCard or Visa, once I realize I've been scammed, I can call and maybe I'll get a refund. MasterCard and Visa will close their account. Or if I use a bank wire, then I need to know the recipient's name and address. And the bank might flag it as suspicious and even give me a call and tell me I'm being, I might be being scammed. Do I really want to send it? 
with crypto, with Tether, I zap it across the world instantly, no refunds. So for these criminals, they're willing to overlook any risks or red flags because it's very handy for them. Tether, the company, they had just sort of created the system and let it fly. There was no evidence that they were really involved with the scam at all or knew even knew the bad guys. They just created this way for people to move dollars around the world. And this is who it attracted. Amazing. And I think in November, wasn't it when uh, uh, Tether said that it froze some $225 million uh, linked to human trafficking? And, you know, these are real problems. And you uh, have, uh, you know, the, the, the most poignant of all chapters comes when you visited that compound in Cambodia and where you talked to people who were trafficked and had to work in sweatshop-like conditions throughout the day. One of them actually hotwired an iPhone and ran out of that place and you got him to prove that to you. I mean, th there's some crazy stories yes. in the book. Uh, I mean, this is like the worst place that I've ever heard about in the entire world. People are beaten. They're tortured. They are so despairing that workers were jumping to their death out the window and that the some of these places were meant to be hotels and they had balconies. You'd see that they'd welded bars along the balcony to turn them into cages so people couldn't escape or couldn't try to try to jump. But I got to this compound where I, like you said, I talked to the guy, Twee, who'd escaped from there, other people who'd escaped from there. Um, this place I'd heard, this evil place I'd heard so much about. And right at the entrance to this kind of office park where the slaves were held, there was a currency exchange that had closed. But you could still see the sign. And it said, change, uh, it advertised Tether. Like, here's a place you can use Tether. Like, I'd spent years in the crypto world. I'd seen so little evidence that anybody in the real world was using it for anything. Again, doesn't prove anything, but very weird that one of the few times I see it in the real world is at this, this like, terrible, terrible place. Sadly, I just spoke with someone the other day who'd visited more recently. And when I had visited this place, Chinatown, in Sihanoukville, in southwest uh, Cambodia, the place had been emptied out by raids from the authorities, but it had started to fill up again. That's what I found. When I talked, the person who'd been there more recently said it's full now. I don't know that 100%. And yes, I thought it was very interesting that Tether made this announcement. They'd freezed some some wallets that it had to do with, with human trafficking uh, because it's kind of a weird position Tether's in. Let's say Bitcoin was being used for human trafficking. There's no one to call. They will not freeze mm, any wallets. They yeah. can't be frozen. It's decentralized. Right. But Tether, it's crypto, but it turns out they can do something about it if they're presented with evidence. I showed in the book that they've been kind of resistant to helping victims who've been scammed, at least in some cases. Now it seems like they're trying to put on a show that they are good guys, that they're willing to work with law enforcement. Um, and I wonder why the change in attitude. I'm curious what's happening behind the scenes. And curiosity got the better of you as well when you put your some part of your savings on the line. Uh, how did your wife react to it when you decided to put some of that hard-earned money to, to what? Did you buy some ape coin? What did you do with that money? Just uh, refresh my memory, please. <laughs> yes. So a lot of crypto proponents, when I would meet with them, would ask me, do you own any crypto? And I would tell them, Maybe I got a little, I wanted to try it out. And they'd say, no, you're not, you don't know what you're talking about. You can't possibly understand what crypto is like. 
unless you really invest. This opportunity came up where there was a big conference, like a week-long party for people who had bought a Bored Ape Yacht Club NFT. And I kind of thought, this is the time to do it. You should try it out and invest in one of these. You get to go to this week-long party, which will be interesting to see. And like my friend Jay, his experience with, with Dogecoin was different from mine because he invested. So he invested, he made money. It was fun. Maybe by not investing, I just positioned myself as sort of a hater and I could never understand what it was like to be on the other side. So I decided I was going to get one of these Board Ape Yacht Club NFTs so I could go to the party. And I'd received in advance for writing the book, like the publisher had purchased the proposal and paid me in advance. And it was enough to cover one of the cheaper ones. So it turned out like a, a good board ape could cost $500,000, a million dollars. Justin Bieber had one, Snoop Dogg, Eminem. I wasn't going to get one of those. The advance was not so big. But it turned out the minimum to get into the party, you get a mutant ape, which was kind of like an extra. But okay, if you're listening to this far, just in case you still don't know what these are, an NFT is like a digital piece of art. And the ownership is tracked on the blockchain, which makes it you know, similar to other cryptocurrencies. It's one of the uses of the Ethereum blockchain that I mentioned earlier. It can be used to track all sorts of stuff, including ownership of digital art. Now, art suggests like something cool that artists spend a lot of time on. The Board Ape Yacht Club is not this. It's a series of 10,000 very ugly and derivative cartoons of like monkeys wearing different hats. <laughs> and the first collection of 10,000 sold so well, they created a second 10,000 called Mutant Apes, which are sort of like the same monkeys, but they're kind of, it's as if they've been exposed to radiation. Now they're very ugly. They've melted, their skin's dripping off them. Those ones were cheaper. And I could get one for $40,000. And yes, I, my wife is very forgiving and understanding of all these adventures. And... So it was a bit awkward asking for permission to buy the mutant ape. But pretty quickly, <laughs> she saw that this would be a good adventure for the book. Look, I, I, as I explained to her, and I believe this in my head, every day people were buying and selling these mutant apes. So like, if you bought one for 40000 today, you should be able to sell it for 40000 tomorrow. You wouldn't necessarily lose money. Like, this is a fact. However, once I bought one, it's not how I felt. I felt... Like, I am the last idiot that will ever pay so much money for this stupid cartoon. No one will ever buy it from me. That's how I felt. And I, it was like a sense of panic. I thought that, like, I lit my money on fire and I would never get it back. Um, but I still, I was like, you've come this far. Go to the party. See what it's like. I think in the end, you managed to, uh, we, we won't give it away. Let the readers uh, <laughs> look it up. The part that had me, had my heart skip a beat as well was when you said, that even a typo could cost you that money. So the, the clunky nature of transferring money or selling it or buying it back had me wondering how far away is a user-friendly application from where we are today because it's a pain. It appeared to be a big pain for you to you know, go through hoops just to do that one transaction and without completely knowing whether or not you will get that mutant ape at the end. Uh, after having, you know, paid that money. Yeah. So that was a little 
unknowing. I'm sure for you, more than yeah, anyone else. When I did this, I've been looking into crypto for a while. So I knew it was going to be clunky, but it was so much worse than I thought it was going to be. It was terrible. I just thought, what a joke. You're, you guys are really think that regular people are going to use this? Because if you think that you will get rich, you will do a lot of things. You'll do crazy things. And you you won't worry about a system where if you make a typo, you could lose $20,000. You're like, whatever, I'm going to make $500,000. But in the future that the crypto people promote, they're saying like, we'll use this for concert tickets. Our children will use it for collectible cards. This is a great system that everyone will like. And just my experience of doing it that one time, I thought like once you practice, eventually you get the hang of it. But without the motivation of getting rich, no one will ever learn how to use this system. So I think we're very far away. I've heard there've been some improvements since last year, but I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, for the listener who's not familiar, one of the things that really threw me was I was signing up for this MetaMask, which is like a decentralized crypto wallet. They made me watch a video when I signed up. And the video suggested that you get this sort of password that you need to, in case like something gets messed up on your computer, the wallet's gone, you can resurrect it with this password. They suggested that I inscribe it on a metal plate and then bury the plate in my backyard. I thought, I am never doing that. <laughs> Just give me a customer service number. Not not yet. We are. We will get there shortly. Perhaps. Yeah. But how do you react to this? Uh, on, on Jan 10th, I think uh, uh, the U.S. securities regulator, they approved the first uh, U.S. listed ETF, exchange traded funds, uh, and that will track Bitcoin. Reuters calls it a watershed for the world's largest cryptocurrency and uh, the broader crypto industry. And in 2021, I think uh, they did something similar, right, for, for I think futures. At that time, it was uh, it tracked agreement to buy or sell Bitcoin at a pre-agreed price. But this is more like, could we say that it is a little mainstream and that people can actually make some money without having to invest or have a Bitcoin, uh, without having to go through the, the wallet code or worrying about an FTX going down tomorrow? Uh, so is this something which is a, a little bit of a victory for those or... Uh, again, uh, are we drawing these conclusions way too soon, Zeke? The crypto world needs something to hype. And for the last like several months, this was it. And people were saying this was going to change everything for Bitcoin. And is it really because if you're in the United States and you want to buy Bitcoin, there were already a lot of very easy ways to do it. You didn't have to use one of these decentralized apps. In fact, whenever I open like Venmo, the payments app I mentioned earlier, there's an ad for buying Bitcoin. And there's so many apps that you buy Bitcoin. So this, to me, this seemed like, okay, it's an easier way that you can do in a, there's ta in the US, we have like tax advantaged retirement accounts. So this would enable you to buy Bitcoin in, in one of those. And maybe you already have E-Trade or Schwab or a trading app. You don't want to get some new app. You can still buy Bitcoin. So it did seem like it would open up some potential new buyers, but I questioned whether there were really that many people who wanted Bitcoin, but had not downloaded the other app. Like if you wanted it, you could have already downloaded the other app. So the price ran up a lot as this was being talked about. Since the ETF was approved, uh, the Bitcoin price is back down a little bit. We're at like $40,000 a coin or so now. Now that's still way above where Bitcoin was when we started talking about 
these ETFs. So I guess we'll see if there is this big wave of, of new buyers. But a lot of the, the biggest Bitcoin hypers were saying, as soon as this will is approved, it'll double by now. It's your last chance to get it before it goes over $100,000. Um, and I keep coming back to if Bitcoin is a payment system, it's not a very good one. It doesn't have that much appeal. And if it's an investment, it doesn't generate any returns. So it's not that great for that either. Like the only thing that Bitcoin has is it's a sort of alternative asset. And if everyone believes in it and more people buy it, it'll keep going up and up and up. But to me, it seems like it's vulnerable to a loss of interest if it starts going down. Who wants to buy Bitcoin if it's going down? Then there are those big Bitcoin fanatics who talk about uh, HODL. Yes. You hold it until until you die. And you also write in your epilogue that that is the one coin that you would not bet against is Bitcoin because there are too many folks who have faith that uh, if, if the value of Bitcoin is $40,000, then there are enough people to believe that that's what the figure is. It's it's much like currency, money. In Zimbabwe, you had to pay $5 million, whatever Zimbabwean dollars to get a loaf of bread because that's what people believed it would buy because of the inflation uh, at, at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm not going out to like buy Bitcoin, but I just feel what will happen to it is unpredictable. I would not also go bet against it, but I'm not sitting here thinking, oh, man, I better get some Bitcoin or I won't I won't get rich. I'm sticking with the shares of Coke. They're going to keep making more Coke. Everyone will drink it and I'll earn a steady return that way. Lovely. I just have one final question, Zeke. I know you've got to run to your next meeting is as an investigative reporter, what suggestion would you have for aspiring reporters? And I mean this seriously because these days, uh, reporting, uh, given the influx of blogs and WhatsApp forwards, it's a big problem in India where people just forward things without verifying. Yours, uh, you know, is is a hard, I think it's becoming more of a rarity these days. I don't know how many people actually spend the time and efforts the kind that you do or your kind does rather so what is one suggestion that you will have for those who are into this or regular reporting it's really fun i love doing it and i would say that some people think it requires a special set of skills and it doesn't always like if you think something is too good to be true then call the person who makes it ask them some questions See if what they say makes sense. You can figure things out just with your with your common sense. And it can be a lot of fun to do it. So I would recommend being an investigative reporter to, to anybody. How has it changed since the days of all the president's men where reporters, Carl Bernstein, Bernstein and Bob Woodward, you know, they, oh, they yeah. used to go through phone books. So how much of it, of it has changed now that, you know, we live in a different era? I've only lived in the internet era. It makes things a lot easier because... You could, it's more, it's easier to get people's contact information, but I actually always tell reporters, talk to people because our job is sort of, there's so much information that's out there on the internet. And I think a lot of people, they try to just stick with that. And I think, all right, your job is to get out into the world and check out things that are not on the internet and call people. You could, a lot of people will, will tell you stuff on the phone that they, you know, they wouldn't write on Twitter. Uh, so you have to get them on the phone and see what they really have to say. Right. You you make it sound very simple and you're being modest because the kind of reporting that has, that has gone into this book where I think Sam Bankman-Fried was giving you interviews when the world around him was collapsing. So just to get access to somebody like him and also putting your, I think you put your life on the line perhaps when you were sitting in that car outside the compound when somebody told you not to get out of the car because it, it was a dodgy place. It's one thing to pick up the phone, but also to know 
where to go, how to find, get there, and and and, and also put put your own hard-earned money to see where it takes you. A uh, brilliant, well, I thanks. love the book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I felt like if I this is my first book, and I felt yeah. I love adventurous books, and I felt yeah. like if somebody look you as the reader are paying you know ten, yeah. twenty, thirty dollars for this book, you know I don't want to disappoint. As I was reporting this, I just thought whatever the reader wants to see, you have to go check it out for them. So I yeah. really tried my best to check out everything in the in the crypto world, bring you back the story of this insane bubble. Lovely. Thanks. Thanks so much, Zeke, for your time on this podcast. Thank you very much for uh, doing this. Thank you for having me on. 